Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. We are on verse 8, it's, which is the concluding verse of, verse of the first part. All right? And this is the concluding statement. All right, here we go. So, uh, the angel of Adonai encamps around those who fear him, and he liberates them. Okay, the Yireim. Okay, the, the, the God-fearers. So they get liberated also. And the Yireim here, now this is an important statement. There are, so this brings to three the different kinds, three or four, let's say four really, four different kinds of people who are mentioned here. Okay? So you have the Anavim, and I'm going to defer to to Barrett on this. I I told, told her something, called her yesterday and shared some information with her. So the, the, those who are humble people, and I'm not sure which kind of humble that's talking about. Then you have the author himself, and we really don't know what category he falls into. Then we have the Ani, who could be talking, be taught that himself, or just as likely it's another person, right? Who, who he brings, whom he brings forward as further evidence that God is a saving God. And now you have the God-fearer. The common denominator among all four of them, which is the theme of this part of, of the psalm, is that they are all in need of saving in one way or another. Doesn't mean what that, and what that means we don't know. But redemption from whatever their condition is in saving, that is, that's, that's what this is about. And the point is, remember, that the author's point is we humans have to reach if you're in if you're in a bad situation you've got to reach out to god that it, god's expecting that of you you reach out to god but that's the common denominator they're all in a pickle of one form or another okay whatever they may be and you can use your imagination ani means clearly a poor person but or in what way? Okay. The God fearer, it's interesting. The God fearer does not have any uh, other defining aspect, right? Doesn't say if he's rich or poor, right? Humble or a boasting person doesn't say, right? Oh, which Psalm 34, Mickey? Sorry. Psalm 34. Thank you. And it's clear. It's clear that these are people who fear God and not just fearful people who are f- afraid in general. No, these are people who fear God. Lireav, his those who fear him. Oh, oh, fear him. Okay. Yeah, it says those who fear him. Yeah. So I mean, the point is, though, I think again, here again, it does. They don't. They're not being told to reach out. And I think the assumption is that a person who is a God fearer will automatically reach out because that's that's a defining element right they they are they're very much wrapped up in their relationship with god so it's natural to them like you would a parent okay so they don't need to be told to reach out 
Okay, but they are people who, by the very nature of their belief, reach out to God. So these are all so reaching out then, and and the the um, the the whole the whole the whole thing here here it's interesting because good evening AJ good to hear good to see you or hear you um, the this angel this is it's it's simply saying that God takes care of the Yireim right He makes sure that they're okay because he has this angel around them and he liberates them when they have a need. All right. And that's, that's the flip side of their relationship. Okay. So these are all people who in one way or another reach out by, by the very nature of, of, or, or remember the Anavim, they're the ones who rejoice. This is toward the beginning of the chap of, of the Psalm. When they hear about what the author has to say and witness, he says, this will make them rejoice. In other words, they will have hope and they will reach out to God. Okay, so that that's that fourth element. All right. Now, so this is a this is the concluding statement of the uh, of, of the first part. All right. And. um, Okay. Now, but this, the concluding, the reference to the God-fearer here is also a connecting term to the next part of the psalm. Because we're going to see about the, at, at the core of it is the notion of the fear of God. All right. So this is a, it's a link. And again, it's evidence of the fact that this is a, I mean, I follow the opinion of those who say that this is not multiple authors, it's the same person, but who's expressing uh, his faith and, 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 you know, the values that he's trying to get across here in different ways. Okay? So, um, part two, then, fear of God is one of the major roles. All right? And that would parallel the the role of the Ani Tzadik type, Ani Anav type person in the first one, in the first part. And also the, again, the God-fearer is now, will be in, has been included in it. The other thing we need to keep in mind is, we mentioned this before, that this notion of Dorshe Adonai, remember at the beginning, the author says, Darashti et Adonai, I sought out God. And we're going to see now in the second part, in verses ten and eleven, that 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 term pops up again. Well, it pops up in ten, but there what we're going to see is in the second in verse eleven, it's the it's fear of God, okay. And what we can learn from that, and the ten and eleven, are if you look at when you when we'll get there. This is I'm telling this to you in advance. When you get there, you'll see that structurally they're very close to one another. In fact, the second part is almost identical. So they're the Doresh and the Yore, the one who seeks out God and the God-fearer, are basically paralleling, parallel to each other, which then helps us to conclude that the, the, uh, the, the God, the, the, the fear, the God-fearer 
is the same is is out, sort of on the same level as as the uh, the one who seeks God, All right? But again, it shows you then the integrity of the entire psalm within the this the structure and the use of language brings these various things together. Okay, and now um, <clears throat> remember the first part. There are three saving words, right? So God is very active in part one. He answers, he hears, he saves. And as you will see, God's activity is also expressed down below in part three. God answering, God responding. Okay. So this is the, these are the three terms. So three in the first part. And then three in the last part. Again, more parallel. Again, so wrapping this up. All right. But the interesting thing now, as we move into part two, is God is totally passive in part two. As active as God is in saving in parts one and three, in part two, God is passive. It's really focused on the activity of the human being. In a big way. And that's that makes it a very powerful statement. A very powerful statement. All right? All right, now, part two begins. Ta'amu u'ru kitov Adonai ashrei ha'gever yechesebo. Okay? So, uh, the JPS says, taste and see. Rabbi Siegel says, reason and see. That the Lord is good and fortunate is, or happy is the person uh, who takes refuge in God. Okay? Now, the word, the verb ta'am, if you will flip quickly back to the very beginning of the, of the psalm, you'll find it there in verse one in the introductory statement. Do you see it? Right? Bishanoto et ta'amo. We said when he changed his character, right, he he pretended to be crazy. Right? Where obviously he was not a crazy person. So ta'am does not need, it can mean taste, but clearly ta'am does not mean taste. And so the JPS is is off base on this one. Okay? All right, I see uh Rick Muller and I see uh that the bird has it their hands are up. Okay. All right, Rick. Hi, um the art scroll I have uh contemplate. I said that last well, week too. So you're changing your thought process. We talked about this. That's all. Right. I'm good. Well, I know, but we're we're here now. All right, yes. And that, that's that's a good one. I would say that's a good a good interpretation. You'll see in a minute why. Okay, Bert. I uh, yeah, I was looking at Safari uh, and there are other translations. The French translation is sense. Because I've always been taste has always been strange. I was wondering how we taste how we can taste God. And they they have another translation that is basically taste the words. So a very, very, very interesting Yeah. Well, but listen, so now I'm going to go to my 
my um, beloved friend, the <laughs> you know Mr. Curler and Mr. Baumgartner, and their wonderful lexicon. And so he includes the following. He says it means to perceive by experience, notion, learn, observe, pay attention, and learn. And that fits. And in a sense, it's like, I see your hand, Barbara. Uh, in a sense, it's like what David did. In other words, he changed his, the image of how he, how people perceive him, right? And how he is perceiving the world when he faked that he was crazy. Because when you see a crazy person, you say, Oh, they don't, they, you know, what do they know? You know, you can write them off. All right. And so he switched from being a very um, astute and uh, opportunistic person, which I think he was, um, to being this crazy guy. All right. And so it's clearly nothing to do with taste. It has to do with your thought process, your learning process. Your, 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 your off balance, you know, mentally off balance process, whatever. More to do with the head than the tongue. All right. Okay. Barbara. Rashi says that, uh, ta'amu is comprehend. Good. Comprehend and see. Yes. That's right. Because it says see afterwards, right? It's, I mean, it's S-E-E. Ru. Right? Right. 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 Look. See. That's in the head. It's not in the, it's over here. It's not in the mouth. So I think, I think we're in agreement on this. All right. Anyway, so, so now, but the point here is that what does it say? That God is good. God is good. And that sets the tone for the, the sinful part. The word good appears four times. And what I find again, is this random or is it structured? I'm going to say highly structured because the word tov appears every other verse. Okay. Verses. Uh, so this is, it begins with verse nine, right? Yes. Nine, 11, 13 and 15. It frames it. And it fills the two alternate verses in the middle. This is highly structured. Okay. And in fact, it reinforces what we were talking about, even though the structure is not as rigid in the first part as it is here. And when we get to the third part, you will see again, really structured. And so, but the, but the first part has elements that are are similar to the other two. And remember, we mentioned at the outset yesterday that all three of the parts have the, at least the first four verses of each one have God's name. So this is not some idiot who's, who's writing this. This is a very thoughtful person. And because that's why it's such a thoughtful message. All right, all right. See, this is, this, that's what I love about this one. It's just, it's so good. All right. All right. So his point here is, of course, that 
goodness is an essential element of God. There is goodness in the world. And this is, in, in, in a sense, the, the, the antidote, in a way, for the situation which the people in verse, in the first part and the last part find themselves. The common denominator between the two, right? The first part and the last part is there that something's wrong, right? They're facing challenges in life. The central part tells us life has goodness to it. You have just got to be able to grasp it. And it's up to you to do this. And it means you've got to make the right kinds of choices. All right. And that's powerful. Rabbi Siegel suggests that the middle section is intended to be the one that really carries the essence of the message. Learn about God, understand that there's goodness in the world, and act in a way that grabs hold of that and makes it part of who you are. All right? Okay, Leon. Is there goodness in the world, or is God good? No, but the whole thing, because it it goes beyond it. It goes beyond God, as we will see. Okay, it goes beyond God. It it, it does, because it, it's going to tell you, choose good and not evil. It doesn't deny that there's evil in the world. It doesn't deny evil. It's there. But you should choose the good. It's there. And we'll see. I think it becomes very clear. Anybody else? All right. So, uh, and again, the focus here is on um, human, the human acting. The human is the actor. You have to act. Okay? And and we're going to look at the, the word ra, evil. It's there, right? Verses 14 and 15. And we'll talk about that when we get there. All right. As I said before, the other piece of this is uh, the the notion of fear, fear of God. Okay, fear of God, as we have seen, is a nece- is a necessary element in order to really uh, reach out and appreciate God. That's what this is suggesting. And fear, it's not just shaking and quaking. It can also be, mean awe, that you realize you're standing in the presence of an immense power. And that, and I, it has that other meaning to it. And in a certain sense, that may be what it's talking about. One final observation before we move on. <clears throat> uh, the, the two observations. This notion of the human, um, being an actor along with God. That's the totality of the verse, of the chap, of, of the psalm, right? God will act, but you have to act also. So it's a partnership. And I want to suggest that this is another mode of expressing what is a defining element of the Hebrew Bible, which is the notion of the Brit, the covenant between God and the Jewish people. And the whole point here is to pick up on that notion that there's mutuality. God will act, but we have to act. God will do for us, but we, in a sense, have to do for God. We've got to reach out. We have to choose the values that God has presented to us 
that are the positive good values and reject the ones that are not. That's part of the covenant. And history, I mean, the way the Bible plays itself out, it's when the people don't make that choice that they suffer. And they basically, according to the Bible, they bring their suffering upon themselves in that, in that regard. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, let me see what else. Oh, yes. Final point. This part of the psalm contains gender, a gender statement. It speaks in masculine terms. You will see beneath the sun, there's the word ish, there's the word gether, all masculine. Okay? And, you know, a modern person would say, huh, you see, that's the problem with the old Bible. It's always about men. Where are the women? Okay, that's true. But at the same time, it, I think it tells us something about the nature of the, of the tradition that is influential here. It's wisdom tradition. This is wisdom. This is a, t, a the, a, the, it, the term he's going to say, Bene, listen, my son, I'm going to teach you something that is very common in the book of Mishle, Proverbs, which is a big collection of wisdom. Okay. It's a technical term, practical knowledge that's filled with values that are part of the biblical heritage, but it's applied ethics. That's what, that's what Mishle is. A lot of it is about. And so it is the, that tradition is definitely masculine. There's no question about it. And it may be the reality. <clears throat> we know that you had, uh, we don't, I don't know the, all the details, but there's enough details we have from a book like Ben Sira, which was written around the year 200, uh, BCE. It's in the Apocrypha. Okay. It's not in the Bible. It is, it is cited in the Talmud, by the way, 29 times. So it, it was a valued book even by the rabbis. And there it is a, you know, you can see how masculine things are. The, the word bene, for example, to refer to a student, a disciple, it's all over the place. How many times do you think the word bat, daughter, appears in Mishlite, once, and it has nothing to do with learning. It's just a descriptive, once. Now, it's very interesting because wisdom itself manifests itself. She is a woman. Isn't that interesting? She is a woman because chokhmah is a, is a, is a, is a, is a feminine term. I mean, grammatically, chokmah is a feminine term. So in the personae of the book of Mishle, wisdom is a woman. And you read it, you'll see, it's very simple, very clear. But who partakes of her offerings? Men. Okay. The only, the only, and the only, it's very, it's uh, almost, I don't know, it's uh, ironic or what. The part of Mishle, that actually presents a woman, not wisdom, but a, a real woman in a light that uh, begins to approach 
what we would call today gender equality, is that what we recite on Shabbat evening, the so-called Eshet Chayel segment, right? The last chapter, the last verses of the last chapter. Now, even though, Taibal, I say your hand, just hold on. Um, that, if you read it closely, she, of course, she runs the household, but this is a woman who buys and sells real estate, who has her own business and is in total control of her life. She is so well known that the folks who hang out at the gate of the city, who are all men, and her husband is there, maybe he's the one that talks her up, but they all know about her. That's the last line. Her 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 wonderful her wondrous wondrous deeds will resonate in the gate of the city, and if you think about that, you know she's way ahead of the Bible in terms of all of these different things. Her husband doesn't control anything for her, of her life. It's really interesting. I remember that my wife and I. When we got married, we were doing it. And then later on, you know, well, women's equality, da, da, da. So we stopped doing it. And then I read it over and I explained it to Freddie. We're doing it again. We've done it for many years now. But I, you know, because I, I realized when you read it, and a lot of women don't understand that, you've got to put it in its historical context. In its context, it's really advanced. Okay, and and the irony is this is at the end of a book of wisdom, where the where the the students of wisdom are clearly men. So go figure. All right, let's see anything else. I'm looking at my notes. No. All right. Okay, so here we go. Verse ten. Oh yeah, Tybal, your hand is gone. All right. Yeah. Well, because it's still. I, I hear I hear what you were saying, but still it's within the role structure. It's not it's a woman defined by the marital role. Oh yes, of but, course. No, no, that's the point. It's it's a def, it's defined by the culture of biblical times. There's no question. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing. I'm not disagreeing. I just find no, it I, interesting. I mean, there's no question about that. But but in, I'll say in spite of that, because it is clearly a paternal society, but in spite of that, it has a very avant-garde tone to it. That's my point. All right. Verse 10. All right. Okay, now pay attention to this. Fear God, O you holy ones, or his holy ones, because there is nothing lacking to those who fear him. So here's fear of God twice. All right? Okay? So he's a reminder. It's interesting. He says to the holy ones, fear God. Don't they already fear God if they're holy? Now the question is, who are the holy ones? We don't know. It sounds like he's speaking to the children of Israel, to the whole people. All right? In other words, the, the mass, the masses. You who are supposed to be, you're the holy ones, right? You're God's holy people. It says in Deuteronomy, you are a holy people. All right. And it is, by the way, it says in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six, chapter 14, verse two and verse 21. I even checked it out. All right. 
And I double check. That's all correct. All right. Anyway, so there it is. So it's, he sounds like he's talking to the people. He's saying, you know, you're whole. God said you're holy. All right. Now act holy. Fear. Make sure that you turn on your fear of God button and act appropriately. If you do, you will lack nothing. Now, frankly, I think he's a little idealistic here. You will lack nothing, right? Okay, because the first part and the last part, really, maybe that's the point. He's speaking idealistically. Because the first part and the last part talk about these terrific people who lack things and they need God to help them. But that's the point. In other words, yes, you God will respond if you act in a manner that is what he's expecting of you. And so if you are in trouble, there will be a response. Now, again, it's clear that he doesn't he doesn't want to go into the reality of how that operates. Okay, it's clear in the, in either case. Uh, but he's trying to get a message across. That's the point. That's the point. And so he's speaking in general terms. And and remember, the rabbis fully understood that there's evil, and it seems to be random. It hits the good and the bad alike. There seems to be no difference. So what's it all about? The rabbinic answer was, whatever isn't cleaned up in this world, in the next world, you'll get your reward. So the concept of life after death, olam haba, came to answer that dilemma. Right? Because if, if God is all good, but we're going to see something in a minute that, 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 we're, that indicates that in biblical times, like with this psalm, people are very much aware of the fact that there's evil in the world. All right. So first, Bert, and then Leon. Uh, it just seems to me this might mean and lack nothing is not, you can read it, I guess, as material things, but it could also be you will not lack the most important thing in life, which is to be next to God. And so if you look at it spiritually, unless unless the Hebrew is clearly as material, I mean, does it say, does it imply material or just? Machsor, I mean, usually it's associated with material things. But I would say I'm not going to foreclose on what you're saying. I like that better. I like the spiritual thing. It resonates more with me because yeah. the lack nothing it clearly doesn't happen. Right. Uh, no, but I mean, chisaron can be can be used. You know, the, uh, a you know, you're you're absent something. You're, something's not there. Lacking something. It could be used for non-material things, but usually you associate it with. It. However, I think this is something you could take either way. And so, thank you for raising that point. All right, Leon, I was wondering whether we are talking about two different groups, Kedoshav, uh and those who are uh, Yirei Adonai. In other words, the two groups may overlap, but they are not identical. Because Kedoshav also means separated from, closer to God, the chosen people, for example. 
yeah, so, but if they, if that's right, the chosen people, exactly. No, that was where I was saying that you were, I agree. That's where I started off my, I wasn't clear. My point is, yes, the Ereim, you're, in other words, he's saying you could be Kadosh because you're an Israelite, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're Yurei Adonai. Right. Now, as an Israelite, God expects you to be Yurei Adonai. So get with the program. Yeah. That's, that's how I understand it. Yeah, exactly. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. It's only in those passages in the book of Deuteronomy that B'nai Yisrael are considered to be ipso facto holy. Only there. If you read Genesis, well, of course, there's no B'nai Yisrael. Well, toward the end of Genesis, there is. But if you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, nowhere does it say, would God say to the people, does Moses say to the people, you are holy. It says, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy people. You shall be unto me. All right? It says in Leviticus, that's Exodus, chapter 19. Leviticus, chapter 19, same number. Kadoshim tihiyu, ki kadosh You be holy because I, God, am holy. So it's aspirational, right? It's not actual. It's something that we hope for. And how do we attain holiness? God says, do this, do that, do this, don't do that, don't do this, and you'll be holy. All right, which means, so it's, but here, the, the, the interesting thing is that the prophet is making a statement, Kedoshim. And unless he's talking to the, to the priests in the temple, which he could be, but actually, a, a, and there were corrupt priests, but I don't know if the time of the, at the time of the author, uh, if they were corrupt yet, I can tell you in Second Temple times, late Second Temple times, they became very corrupt. Um, anyhow, uh, but uh, so I don't think he's talking to priests. They knew. And by the way, the priests are the only ones that are holy. That's what we read up in the Torah yesterday, this past Shabbos, right? God, Mo, Moses. God tells Moses, do this, do that, and the other thing, and you will sanctify Aaron and his sons. Because they have to be holy, because where do they work? It comes with the job. Okay. But it only comes after they go through a certain ritual of sanctification. Okay. Anyhow, so, but I don't think he's only talking to priests. The priests understood that because they dealt with these things constantly. All right, so I, I think it's the people. Now, so the question is, does this mean that we can date the psalm to sometime when the book of Deuteronomy was around, which is sometime after 620 BCE, or at least proto-Deuteronomy, maybe, you know, 700, maybe the time of Hezekiah, 720, 710, 700, during that period. I don't know if that one term, this one statement can be enough, uh, is enough evidence to date the psalm. 
But it's interesting that he's picking up here on what clearly is a minority opinion in Torah Moshe. Okay? It's, it's very, I find that interesting. All right. <clears throat> now, now the next line, and, and again, you're going to see that this is, it's almost these two Psalms are working together. Again, it says, right? Young lions will become impoverished and go hungry, but those who seek God will not lack any good. Now there that term, lo yachsaru. All right. And this is the point what I, that we all mentioned earlier. The Dorshe Adonai and the Re Adonai are really sort of parallel in these two verses. So I think they're sort of to the two verses that are sort of bouncing off of each other. There's a little mini structure here. That's what I'm suggesting. And it tells you that a Yere Adonai and a Doresh Adonai have in common that they know they know to seek God. And so there's that point once again, carrying over from the first part of the psalm. All right? Now, why does he bring in lions? As they say, Ma inyan shmita etzel har sinai. What does the laws of shmita, the seventh year of release, have to do with the giving of the Torah? Why? What? what huh? Why is it there? All right. Um, so my, my point is, why is he bringing in lions? This is strange, isn't it? Does he bring it in as a very powerful animal that is, you know, the king of the jungle? And well, that that, that lions have a problem. But people who fear God are doing just fine. Wait a minute. But first of all, it's young lions, not 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 uh, young lions. Okay. are young lions. That's right. They're young lions. They're not the alpha lions. We're talking about cubs. Huh? Baby, lion, baby lions, cubs. Not baby. No, no, no. Oh. Here, it's not a. Oh, hold on. Oh, my wife. All right. Never mind. My wife is calling. I'm going to decline. Excuse me. All right. I got to get, hold on. I just slot here. I'm back. All right. Anyhow. Um, all is right. It, wait, wait, it, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We got three people who want to talk. All right. So let's go. Vered, uh, Rick, Heibel, and Suzanne want to talk also. All right. Oh, good. Let's go. Vered, uh, unmute. Unmute. Yeah. Okay. okay sorry. Um, I don't think that he is talking about young lions. I think he's talking about people who behaves like lions, people who are aggressive, people who are evil, people who attack. They have no rules like animals in, in a jungle. So he's talking about characters of people not that are similar maybe to lions. Yeah. But they're not he's not talking about lions. And he says that those people who behave this way, then there is 
kind of a, not a reward, but I even don't want to use the word punishment, but there's an outcome of this behavior that at the end they will be hungry and this is opposite to a lion who is a beast and he hunts and he eats and that they are become rasu means that they were poor and they're hungry um, because they behave the way they did but in contrast to that the other part of the pasuk it says in contrast to the kfirim people who behave like kfirim those that are they won't be lacking any good things and they will not be hungry and they will not be poor. And I like that, that they're talking about the words that repeat themselves, and it's beautiful language, like two parts for this. Right. Good. All right. I like that. Yes. Okay. Uh, Rick. Yeah. Hi. Um, I totally like what Vered said. Um, I just wanted to throw in that um, I don't think the people were thinking of lions in the jungle. They had lions living there with them. I mean, wouldn't didn't Samson fight lions? And yes. <laughs> yeah, they're they're extinct now, but uh, they were there. They were so there. it was a it was an image in the people's minds uh, that they're the most powerful beast around. I also wanted to point out. I hear. Um, in this verse 11 with the kafirim, the rashu v'ra'evu, the, right. the rash, the, the, the word, and, uh, towards the end, 22, timotate rasha ra'a. So it's the, it's the evil, um, it's a structure again. Right. I'm sure you're going to get to it, but I wanted to. Yes. Uh, yeah. I heard it. I heard it here. So. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Very good. All right, wait, then, um, all right, Suzanne, no, Tybal, I think, had her hand up before. Tybal. When I see young lion or lion, I automatically think of what Yaakov said in, in Bereshis chapter 49 about Judah being the young lion, and that became the symbol of the, of the tribe of Judah, and then Judah the trope of metonymy when it stands in for the, I mean, sometimes Ephraim, st- because of the fruitfulness, stands in for all of Israel, but more, but also Judah does. So I, I, I think what the other people said are very, also works, yeah. but I think the young lion, and I was trying to look up, I know it's, I know it's 49, I think it's verse nine if it's the same words. It's okay. No, Jude, yeah, the line of Judah. But that is an expression of, of, of power. You know, I think it's a, that's the other thing. Um, and, um, and I don't know if the word there is kfir, is it? I don't recall. It's, uh, I'm not quite there yet. Uh, is it? I'm not quite there yet. I'm still trying to find it. All right. Uh, okay, Suzanne. I'm going to suggest something's a little bit different from what's been said. Um, in the behavior of young prides of prides of lion, um, male cubs, when they get to be two or three years old, are driven out by the uh, head of the pack. Uh, he doesn't want any potential competition or anyone 
potentially mating with the females who are left. So young lions are somewhat bereft of protection. They are on their own for a few years until they make themselves strong enough to uh, develop a pride of their own. Yes, Um, that's good. And I think I think everything that everybody has said, you, you know, fits in with the picture. Uh, I want to share with you Ibn Ezra, my old friend, because he, you know, he's he asked the same question: Why a lion? And he says something. He's talking specifically young lions, right? And it sort of fits in with what Suzanne said, but also with what everybody else said. That he says they tear, they rip at their meat, and they eat compulsively so that they don't think in terms of what's the consequences of doing that, which is that they're left with not enough food for the next day. And they are, they're poor, and they're hungry, because they ate compulsively. Now, this is not a, you know, it's not putting down people who, you know, are compulsive eaters. The point is, it's sort of this notion, they're out of control. They are compulsive. They're driven by impulse, not thoughtfulness, right? Whereas Adoresh Adonai is engaged in the highest level of human expression. And this is a low animal level. I mean, that was like what Barrett said, that there are people who operate at this level and they're, 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 they don't understand consequences and they just act impulsively and they get into trouble and they shouldn't do that. So I, I think that's what he's talking about. Now, I think what, what, what Suzanne told us is it's very likely that these, you know, a, a young lion and I've, I've watched, I've, I've seen, you know, some of those nature film. I like to watch the nature movies. You know, and that is true. The lions, they are kicked out, but also because they're a pain in the butt. You know, I mean, they're, they're compulsive. They, they're, you know, they're like teenagers, if you will, at certain points, like adolescents. Their brain is undergoing change, you know, to prepare them for the future, but it's not quite there yet. And so they act in a way that is, it can be self-destructive. That's what he's saying. And that's, but the contrast is, of course, the thoughtful person who is a God-fearer, who is a Dore Shadonai, who's serious about life and, and, and understands consequences. I think that's what he's saying. Now, the fact is, I, if I'm not wrong, I think I'm right on this. Lions, you know, they, they usually it's one lion. And ten women and ten lionesses, or however many he can handle, you know. And generally, it's the lionesses who do the hunting, right? And the 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 alpha male gets the first bite, right? And they eat and they eat and they eat. And by the time they're finished, only the hyenas have things left for them and the vultures, right? And what do they do for the next three days? They sleep. They sleep. <laughs> they, don't, they don't run much. Then they get up sleeping and they're hungry. You, they you say that hunt. like it's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they do. You, you say that it's a bad thing.
after, you know, after waking up, they get out there. Okay, ladies, go do your thing. You know, sometimes, sometimes the, the alpha male will, you'll participate in the hunt, but generally it's the ladies who do all that work. See, and nobody gives them any respect. Anyhow, that's so, so it's, <laughs> I don't know if he was aware enough. I remember even Ezra doesn't live. <laughs> there were no lions around in Spain, as far as I know. Maybe there were. I don't know. Did they have zoos back then? I don't think they were not a part. Lions are not part of the fauna of the, the animals of Spain. No, I don't know. But I don't know. All right, whatever. Anyhow, yeah, but I mean, I think what everybody contributed to this fills in the picture. Because it is a strange, this is a strange thing. And I think the whole fact is that, that this is a kafir and not an arie, right? And, and that's a difference. Judah, the lion of Judah is the, is the, is what happens hopefully to the kafirim when they mature, they get out there and they had to fend for themselves. And then they finally realize that they do, that they have consequences. Whatever that, I don't know how their brains operate, but clearly they learn. And if they don't, they die. And that's the other thing. If they can't manage to control their impulses, be patient, and do what they need to do, they're going to die. Okay. And that's, that's just, the, that's sort of what I think he's saying here. But any, I don't know if they even ever as you knew that, whatever. But anyhow, yeah. All right. So I think we've solved that one. Uh, but yes, clearly the Rashu Varaeba, the use of the races there will be echoed later on. Um, all right. The, by the way, the, the, yes. Okay. So I did that. And by the way, yes, the impoverishment, I think, you know, going back to, to what, um, what Bert said earlier, the impoverishment can be I think we can understand it, and it maybe he understands it that way as well, is more than simply material well-being. He may be talking about something bigger as well. Okay, it goes along with the seriousness of the Doresh and the Yirei Adonai, the people who seek out and fear God. It's serious stuff, and it's not just filling your belly. So, I mean, that may be, that, that may be a good thing, yeah. All right. Now, okay. Verse 12. Luchu vanim. Here you have it. Vanim. Shimuli. Listen to me. Yirat Adonai alam medchem. I'm going to teach you about fearing God. I'm going to teach you what fearing God is. Okay. Now, um, and the point, I think the point is that this is uh, it, it, it's something that re- think about what's happened, going to come now. It's an ethical statement that's coming up. Remember, we mentioned last the last time that this is not something where a religious something specifically religious expresses itself. This is more practical. This is from remember the a strong, a powerful element within the wisdom traditions is practical wisdom. Okay, practical wisdom. All right. So now we're going to see an example of that in terms of what happens, what what activity the God-fearing person 
has to act in a certain way. And that's how you tell that they're God-fearing, by their actions, okay? Which again, you know, if you if you, if you read somebody like Rambam and, and even the rabbis, it's this notion of you're acting, you're imitating God because we judge God by God's actions. We know God through God's actions. And so we know about the God-fearer through the God-fearer's actions. And now what is it going to be? And it's going to be speech. Now, why do you think he chose speech to express this uh, this notion? Tybal. Because, I mean, it's from your Bible class. That's how the world, when God spoke, that's how the world came to be. And then God gave, part of God giving humans to, human, the human dominion was that the human got to speak and give identity to the preachers. Right. Very good. It is a defining element of the human being. Right. And that in and of itself is also an, a, 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 an imitation of God. Because yes, remember, I think we said, or maybe it was the, you know, the other class we talked about this, that maybe it was maybe this class, that the word to speak is mentioned 10 times in the first chapter of Genesis. God speaking. It's a defining element. Okay, it's a defining element. So, uh, yes. All right, good. Uh, who else? Barrett. Okay. So, my understanding of this pasuk is concentrating on the word banim, which means children or son, referring to people who are younger to the person who is going to teach them and has more experience. And he is going to share with them or based on his life experience, he wants to teach them. Because at the end of this pasuk, he says, Alamdechem, I am going to teach you. I have experience. I've lived my life. I want to tell you something. You are young. You are banim. They're not still men. So listen to me. Um, I will teach you what is Irat Adonai. And then he comes with his speech. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just a second. All right. I think I lost you for a minute. Are you there? Fin- did, did, did you finish? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I'm sorry you lost, lost me. No, no, no. It's okay. Finish. My wife, <laughs> Freddie, just bought some airline, airline tickets. And so she's sending it to me and I have to accept them. So that's Heaven a- is Enjoy your trip. Thank you. Yes. No, because she's got it. <laughs> <laughs> when she's coming back. All right. Anyway, um, uh, yes, no, that, that, yeah, that's right. And, and that's, that's, that's part of th- this notion of, and, and look, I mean, it's the same thing in the first part. He's not playing the role of a teacher there, but in a sense he is because he is teaching there by his actions in seeking out God. In the first part, and so he's making himself a role model, and that's why he says, 
when the when the anavim hear hear uh, hear what I'm telling them, they're going to be happy, right? So he isn't he's there. He's instructing by what he's doing, and and uh, here he's instructing by playing the role of a teacher, a more a more classic role, and they're they're banim, right? You know, it's like it's like a seminary professor coming into the class before women, there were women rabbis and women rabbis, rabbinical students. And he says, okay, boys, let's get going, right? He's calling us boys. And we're 25, 24, 26, but we're boys, right? Because we're here and he's going to make us men. The Torah, in a sense. I mean, so this notion, yes, that the, the teacher is, but it's also an affectionate term, you know, banim, my children. Yes, and I think a, a teacher has to have a love relationship with their kids, with their students. I mean, there's got to be this this sense of of affection that they really care for them, and how they teach should reflect their care of the students. And that's what's really going on here, because he's got talking essentials about making life meaningful. Right? He's making life what make, making life meaningful. All right, uh Bert. Uh one last comment. Yes. I wanted to think also about Vehigadeta Levanecha or Vehigadeta Levincha. Of course. So you teach your children. Right. From your experience or also the the right. history of what you know. But that I think is that is Mamish, your 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 family's children. Yes. That's a father to children, yes. Yes. The same notion though, right. It's similar. Yeah. Bert. In verse thirteen, the English says, Listen to me. The word for listen in Hebrew, I'm wondering it's not Shma. Wait, what we're not that thirteen. Verse thirteen, Mihaish Hahavitz Chaim. Oh, we're not there yet though. Oh, I'm sorry. No, we're at twelve. I'm sorry. I apologize. But when we get there, we <laughs> All right, okay. I'll come back to you. Or I might even answer it before you even finish getting it out. <laughs> All right. Weren't you asking about Shimu in twelve, Bert? Were you asking about Shimu? Shimu ah. in twelve. Yeah. Listen to me. Is that that you... makes sense in twelve. Yes, Bert, you hear? Uh it's in so, yeah, my my Hebrew is, is quite limited. So yeah. the word for listen here is related to Shema. That yes. yes. Okay, it's it's so uh with respect to what Taiba was saying about the importance of sound, here Shema or or the same root is related to Shema Yisrael. I mean it's 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 an act of listening, not a passive not, hearing. Yes, it is, but but that is that's not just this doesn't have I, I will I will um move a little bit away from what you're saying. This doesn't have Shema Israel in mind directly. I mean he's teaching them, yes. Yeah, it's a it's a similar paying attention. It was yes, like exactly. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yes. I that's right, in that sense, yes. All right. Okay, so now we're moving into the core, if you will, of this thing, which is exactly what is it that needs to be done? Not in this sentence, in the next one after this, 
But now we're going to look at 13. Mi ha'ish. So you see there again, it's banav, ish, geber, right? The gender issue. Mi ha'ish echafetz chayim. Who is the man who desires life? Ohev yamim lirot tov. Who loves years of seeing good. In other words, he wants, he's, he wants, he, he, the, a person who wants to live a long and a good life. What more can you ask for? Okay. So what is this? What is it that this person needs to do to accomplish that? Okay. And, uh, you know, and, and I think again, um, loving, loving length of days, uh, desiring life, seeing goodness. It's not just mundane things. It's, it's, I think it's talking. It wants, to, it's, it's sort of carrying the notion, a meaningful life, a life that has value to it. Okay. That, then I, it seems to me that that's what, what he's, what he has in mind. Not just amassing stuff. Correct. Not, not picking good stocks and investing wisely. Right. Exactly. All right. So here we go. Nutsor now. Lutsor Lishoncha Meira. Right? Guard your tongue from evil. Usfatecha midaber mirma. Okay. And your lips from speaking deceit. Evil and deceit coming out of your mouth. Alright? And the the uh we saw before Lashon and Svatayim, these two things were mentioned. So this is uh let me go back and find it. Was it here or something else I showed to you? Just a second. Hold on, hold on. Give me a moment. I gotta go backwards. Oh no, it's not there, it's here. I'm looking like a uh an old absent minded professor. Let me see. Where is it? I used to have an I used to have a we we used to have a uh, an accountant who helped us with our uh, income tax, and I would walk into his office. Okay, the guy was was you should pardon me a yeke. You know what a yeke is? It's a, a German Jew. All right. Why that name came from? I don't know. All right. I'm a Polisher. I'll say it right now. People make plenty of fun of me. All those Polish jokes, you know. This is a, a, a Deutscher. So he was a Deutscher. What do you expect from a, a, a German accountant when you walk in the office? What? Ordnung. Everything in order. All is in Ordnung. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Nine. No. Nine. <laughs> there was a big pile of, of paper on his desk. And he'd just say, yeah, yeah, one moment. Yes, Rabbi, okay, well, let's get your papers there right over, uh, right over here. And he would pull the papers. I feel like him right now because I'm going <laughs> to, because I know I mentioned this once before. So just give me a second. Hold on. Um, well, if you, if you talk to yourself in German, that would be very entertaining, Rabbi. Yes, thank you. No, it's, it's <laughs> not here. It was never mind. No, it was in something else. Okay. All right. Anyhow, so 
So guard your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Okay, so here, Lashon, Ra, right? Lashon, Ra, evil speech. So here you have a foundation for that concept. Lashon Hara, right? Gossip, evil speech. Okay, Mirma, deceit, deception. Um, you'll find that verb used when... Um, we have biblical characters who deceive others. That same verb is used. So it's, it's a common usage for, for a very, uh, for a very horrible way of speaking, of using speech. All right. Now, Chafetz Chaim. We need to pause for a moment at that word. There is a man called the Chafetz Chaim. And he's called the Chafetz Chaim because as often as the case, very often people are spoken of on the basis of the book. So <clears throat> uh people don't know that uh, Yaakov ben Asher is the author of the tour, okay, the great law code of Spain of the 14th century, okay? Because he's called the book, everybody says, the tour says, right? The tour says. Uh, you don't speak of, I mean, you can because they're mentioned, the Bale Tosafot, right? But you talk about the Tosafot, say, right? The compilations of these additional uh, interpretations of, of Talmud, right? Rashi is often called Kuntras, which is the the written book, the the, uh, the ledger, if you will, uh, that the, you write details in. You take notes in. Yeah. Peresh HaKuntras, it says. The Kuntras, the book said. So in our tradition, the names are secondary. You talk about the Mora Nebuchim, right? The Mora Nebuchim, or the, the Mishnah Torah says. Right? Mishnah Torah says. Who's the, who, who wrote the Mishnah Torah? Yosef Karo. Doesn't say Yosef Karo says, the Mishnah Torah says. It's the name of, of the, of the law code. So we do that, right? Okay. So, Hafez Chaim, same thing. Except the Hafez Chaim was not somebody who lived in the Middle Ages. The Hafez Chaim is, is, uh, I wrote his name then just to assume that because I knew I was going to forget it. Yeah. So it's Yisrael, Rabbi Yisrael, Mayor Kagan, Kagan. Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan, he met, this is a man who lived a long life. He was born in 1838, and he died in 1933, 95. Pretty good back for back then, for even for today. This is very good. He lived in Belarus. His major works were the Chofetz Chaim, his famous book on the ethics of speech, it's a, an amazing book, okay. If you want, that's unbelievable. And the and the other one he's known for is the Mishnah Brura, which is an interpretation of Halacha, clarified. Barur means clear, right? So it's like he made the Mishnah clear. The it's a, it's a book of Halacha, very well known. Okay, so this is a Gadol Hador. This is a giant uh, among the Eastern European rabbis. Uh, during the course of the late 
19th and early 20th centuries. So the Chafetz Chaim, it comes from here, right? That's why he called the book the Chafetz Chaim. So you have two, you have Chafetz Chaim from the here, Loshon Hara from here. So this is a seminal, the Psalm, this part of the Psalm has, has really resonated powerfully throughout the ethical tradition of Judaism. And the whole concept of, of, of how one speaks, obviously, for reasons we said before, speech is a defining element of a human being, right? In a sense, it is we playing a role like God does of speaking. It's, it's the way we teach, right? And you have, remember, the oral Torah, Torah Shabal Peh, yes, the oral Torah, <clears throat> Mishnah Talmud, etc. So this whole notion of the power of speech and the importance of speech for our tradition of the, as a concept comes out of here. All right. And this, that's, I'm sure that's, that's why, uh, it's, this was chosen because it is such a powerful force as we know today as well. Okay. All right. So now, so here, ah, yes. Yes, this is what I was thinking about. Hold on, Vera, just a second. I want to before. Okay. Yeah. There is a pasuk in Mishlei in chapter, it's chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. And this is what it says. Mipri pi ish tisba bitno tuatsvatav yizba mavet v'chayim Biyad Lashon, Okay? So, from the fruits of a man's mouth will his belly be filled, right? And the, uh, he will be filled, satisfied from the produce of his lips. Okay? In other words, the way a person talks is going to have a powerful effect on his life. And hence, the second line, Mavet v'chayim biyad lashon. And death is power of the hand, uh, of the lashon, of, of the tongue, right? V'ohaveha yochal piriyah. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Okay? All right. Now, what is the it? Ohaveha means those who love it. And the it is feminine. Okay? The only feminine verb here is tfu'ah, the produce of his lips. Okay? Now, what does it mean? What his, what, how he controls his mouth will determine what that produce is. Yes. It will either be life or death. And life or death will depend on how we speak. It's a powerful statement. It's a true statement. Right? And here you have that. That's what I had in mind of, uh, you have here, right? The mouth, then you have the lips, then you have the tongue, 
and you have again the fruit. It's a mm-hmm. chiasm. It is yeah. a it's a chiasm. My old friend, A B B A, mm-hmm. A Mipri, B Svatav, B prime Lashon, A prime Piria. Okay, the fir- the A's refer A and A prime fruit pre fruit. Then you have the two elements that comprise the mouth, Svatayim, lips, and Lashon, tongue. Okay, so this is a, it's a mini, it is, is, is intentionally set up in this structure to, to make an impact. And I think this is, you got to keep this in mind when you read what we have in this chapter, right? The Tzor Lashon Chabeira Usfatecha Midaber Mirma. Guard your tongue and your lips. Tongue, lips, here also. So this is, a, it's a wisdom tradition. I'm reading Mishle here. This is from Proverbs. So you see, this is, this is not the only place where these are mentioned. It's, this is important. This is an important principle. The power of the spoken word. That's what this is all about. And this is the, the sort of the high point of the psalm. All right. And this, I learned about, uh, the, uh, tvu'at sapatav, that the feminine here is the tvu'ah from guess who? My old friend, Ibn Ezra. I'm becoming, I'm becoming a big fan of Ibn Ezra as I'm teaching these classes because he really had a real handle for Hebrew. He's a smart guy. All right. Some hands were poking up. Leon, did you have your hand up? I just wanted to add one thing because I wanted to say, so you said it. And I wanted to say that the word tevua actually has the verb bo in it, the verb to come. So it's actually whatever comes through your mouth is important. You know, Chaim, exactly, right. Yes. So whatever you said, but I also had the comment about Pasuk Yud Gimel, but maybe we should go on some other time. Okay. All right. Uh, Leon. I am extremely, I mean, not astounded, but it really hit me that uh, neither Chukim or Mishpatim are mentioned here. Okay? You have a completely different way to come to the good life. Normally, we, uh, you know, in the Torah at least, you're constantly talking about the laws. I mean, starting in, uh, of course... Uh, where we are in uh, uh, Exodus. But in here, uh, you have that, who, who are the Dorshea Adonai, and who are those that Irat Adonai? Not necessarily those who keep any commandments, okay? They are those who uh, keep their, you know, mouth shut or do the proper things with their mouth, and those who seek to do good and keep away from evil. Yeah. But it's not defined in uh, Torah terms at all. 
Uh, not directly, but I want to remind you, though, that the notion of um, controlling deceit, if I'm not mistaken, it's in it's in by it's in Parshat Kedoshim. It's mentioned there. So there are elements of this in Torah, but you're right. I mean, where you have, I mean, there's more Mishlei, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, that's the whole point. Uh, it's it's quite it's it's often called secular, right? The difference is, it is the God is mentioned. You know, Mishlei is not devoid of God, so it is. These are, it's a, an addendum. If it's you the way to reach Him, I think that is different that they're proposing here. Yeah, okay. no, it, but it's a different genre of. Yes, it is. It's a different genre. It's very. It's quite unique, and the fact is, this is the same uh, kind of. Uh, Literature. It it was internet. This was a transnational uh, mode of of uh, values. There is a universalism here that is Egyptian wisdom. You have. I mean, I don't know specifically what, but I mean, I've read about the fact that these wisdom traditions cross national boundaries in the Middle East, in the ancient ancient Near East. They do. But I'll tell you something else. All right. I can get, I can pull a book off the shelf. I'm not going to go looking for it right now, but I've done this. Bert, I see your hand. Okay. Just a second. What I'm about to tell you is something that I've actually done in classes in rabbinical school. I uh, know I was teaching. Yes. I used to teach medieval history, medieval Jewish history. And, and also by Cheney, I've done, you know, a lot, whatever in, in rabbinical school. So I used to pull, I bring out a text that I read and I would read it in English trans, in, you know, in English. And I said to them, I asked the students, where is this from? And they said, it's Pirkei Avot. The ethic, and the same thing, Pirkei Avot has a lot of wisdom tradition also. Okay. So anyhow. They said, everybody said, Pirkei Avot, of course. I said, no. It comes from a medieval Arabic book called The Teachings of the, of the Philosophers. And it quotes, doesn't quote rabbis, it quotes Greek philosophers. But it's set up the exact same way. The structure of the book, the style, is almost identical to Pirkei Avot. Does, does it mean that the authors of Pirkei Avot were aware of these books of Greek philosophy? And they, you know, or does it mean that the Arab guy who did this had read Pirkei Avot and said, ooh, that's a good way of structuring philosophy? No. But it was part of the culture of the classical, the classical period of Greco-Roman culture that was transferred into Middle Eastern teaching. And it means that Pirkei Avot, the structure of it, and maybe even some of the maxims in it, was influenced by that Language, that 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 style of wisdom that was floating around during the period of Roman control. 
because the Romans, as you know, were there are a lot of Romans running through Eretz Israel, and very often they didn't like them. Sometimes they did, and we know for a fact that in the in the yeshiva of the of of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, in this in the academy of the Nasi, which was an academy for people who were apparently working in the government. They taught Greek. Saul Lieberman has books where he identifies, may he rest in peace, the great Saul Lieberman, the great Talmudist, knew Greek and Latin, as well as he knew Hebrew and Aramaic. And he had all the classics appear as he did the Bavli and the Yerushalmi. The guy was a genius. And he has books showing that Chazal, our sages, use different kinds of literary and intellectual structuring that were part of Greco-Roman culture because they were part of that culture. The same way that the biblical people were part of the culture of the Middle East. Excuse me, my phone is ringing. No, that's my alarm. Just a second, I'll be right back. All right. That is telling me that it's nine o'clock and that's when we're supposed to stop. So just to wrap up. Oh, Bert, Bert, last question. Just very briefly, uh, commenting on what Leon said. This strikes me as one of those attempts to say, you know, there's all these halakha, that there's, there's so many laws and so many rules and the chukat and the mishpatim that the average person cannot possibly know all them and absorb all of that and figure out what to do. And so it reminds me of the famous story about Hillel standing on one foot yeah. or Mika, uh, the prophet Mika saying, what does God require of you? And so this is, for me, it's kind of like a macro, you know, you want to live a good life. Here are the basic, here's the basic principles. And not that the other things aren't important, but anybody can understand this. It's not all that complicated. Yeah. Well, it, uh, carrying it out though is complicated. Uh, and a, a bit difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So we're going to continue. Uh, we're halfway through it. I'm not, we're going to have to spend more time on this. By the way, we will definitely finish this next time because we're almost finished with this section. All we have left is the third section. So I believe next week I can say with a great uh, conviction, we will finish Psalm 34. But now you understand why I got so excited about teaching this and sharing it with you because it is, it, it's, it's an, it's a, from a literary perspective, from an ideological perspective, you know, from so many ways, it is really a fascinating psalm. And, and you know, this is one of those psalms that it's in the Sidur, but we just zip through it because it's in Psuki de Zimra on Shabbos, and we want to get to the good stuff, you know. So <laughs> we should read our psalms more carefully. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.